Welcome. It's January 9th, 2013. This is our first regular session of the year. And are there any additions or deletions to the agenda, Phyllis? There are none. There are none. Are there members of the public who wish to comment at this time? Commissioners? Comments? Richard? Thank you, Michael. I'd just like to say briefly that as we begin a new year, I'm kind of glad to see 2012 go. Between some of those horrible tragedies like Newton, the tension throughout the country on the election, the whole fiscal cliff, the drought of Colorado, and ongoing losses in the wars to all of us. And so I would just like to hope that 2013 is the year we see an end to a lot of those things, that we see the coming together of our country to deal with issues such as gun violence and coming together to deal with our financial struggles in a way that isn't just politics and leads to a better future, and that we see those whose lives are in danger at war and those who have already sacrificed and lost so much find peace and comfort. I'd like to ask for a moment of silence. So we'll have a moment of silence. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Michael. Other commissioners? Comments? It's about two items premature, but I just wanted to acknowledge and thank Michael for sharing this past year. It's something that we all rotate on, and as those of us who have done it in the past know, it is some extra time and extra work and at times extra stress. But I wanted to thank Michael for his chairmanship this year and set sort of the bar in terms of punctuality, which I appreciate, and we'll try to continue that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks. Rob, any comments? No comments today. Okay. We'll move on to consent actions. There's approval of the minutes of the work session of December 11th and 18th, special meetings of October 16th and December 11th, and regular meeting of December 5th, 2012. I will make a motion for the approval of all of those minutes. Is there a second? Second. Yes, George? I have one just quick little topic for Mindy. The December 5th regular meeting on page 8 for the citizen comments, you have Peter with an M, Norm, and it's actually his name is Norm with an L. L-O-R. O-N? I'm not sure how it's called. A-M. 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 Thank you. I'll correct that. Okay. Great. Thanks. All right. Well, accept the adjustment. Any further discussion? All in favor? Aye. The next item is a resolution appointing commissioner chair and vice chair representatives to various boards, committees, and authorities. Susan Murphy, she handed that. I don't think she needs to be here. So I will just read out the various assignments. So the 
and we decided this was a work session in one of these, and we need a resolution. Um, so George Newman is going to be chair, Rob Ibner is going to be vice chair, uh, Aspen Chamber and Reserve Association is myself, Michael Owsley, alternate is Rob Ibner, Carl uh, Connors or Rachel Richards and Steve Childs, I won't read out the various sure. subcommittees because we'd be here till three. <laughs> and um, uh, uh, Colorado, I don't know if you know this, John, but the Colorado River Water Conservation District, you've been appointed uh, for another term. <laughs> You weren't present to object to that. So, um, Community Office for Resource Efficiency is George Newman. Alderman is Rob Edner. Northwest Council of Government is Rob Edner. Alderman is Steve Child. Northwest Council of Government Water Quality and Quantity is Rachel Richards. Alderman is George Newman. Rafter Board of Directors is Michael Owsley. Alderman is George Newman. Rudolph Water Power is Michael Owsley. Uh, alternate is Rachel Richards. Uh, rural Resort Region is Rob Edner. Alternate is Steve Childs. And a rural, uh, the Triple R Workforce in Investment Board is Rob Edner. And then the Workforce Development Board is also Rob Edner and Nan Sundin. And other appointments not required by a resolution or ordinance or intergovernmental, intergovernmental agreement, but we're making note of those, is the BN liaison is George Newman. You have USFS liaison is George Newman. Colorado River Roundtable Basin is Rachel Richards. Alternate is George Newman. Northern Council is Steve Childs with alternate George Newman. Senior Council is, Council is Steve Child. Water liaison is Rachel Richards. West Elk Loop Scenic Byway Committee is George Newman. Intermountain TPR is George Newman. And Colorado River Basin 1177 is Rachel Richards. Is there a motion? Yes, Rachel? Um, I'd like to make a correction and then a motion. But um, actually, this Colorado River Basin Roundtable is on here twice for no real reason. <laughs> and um, as I mentioned yesterday, it needs to be brought up into the more formal appointments because uh, that's what the Basin Roundtable is asking for. So what's the proper name? Uh, so yeah, it is actually the third one down in that section, the Colorado River Roundtable Basin, we could just call that, or 1177 Basin. And that should be moved up a little bit just to the more formal appointments. So I suggest that amendment. Yes. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just trying to follow where we are exactly in that. It, it's at the, uh, the very last one, and the third one from the top are duplicates. And of the other appointments. Of the, on the other appointments. Oh, okay. And uh, it, it should be the Colorado River Basin 1177 Round Table would be the formal name. And is it staying in under other No, other it's, it needs to move up to the formal appointments. Uh, you have that in the end? And Carlos, do you have that? Yes. Yeah. So I don't the uh, CEO River Basin 1177 stay? No, it goes away. They do the Okay. Thank you, Lindy. And the alternate would be moved up too for Yes. Me. Yes. Okay. Good catch up. Is there a motion? I would move to approve uh, as amended. Second. Second. Any further discussion? Yes, Just a really brief comment. Uh, we had most of our uh, to do yesterday to thank Jack Hatfield for his many years of service. Uh, he really uh, was a, a, a great member of this board as well as other things such as Colorado Counties, Inc. And I would just note for the record that our new commissioner, uh, Steve Child, is attending the Colorado Counties, Inc. new commissioner training these next few days. And so that is why he's not here today. 
Any further discussion? All in favor? Uh, Aye. So at this point, George will take over the chairmanship. Great, thank you. And first of all, your business, I think staff has something to present to you, Michael, for your duty. We do. Oh, that's very John Peacock has started this tradition of something for the outgoing chair. Oh, that's very nice. Uh, you can go ahead. We hope you'll... Thank you, my Resolution approving the intergovernmental association with emergency fire fund with Colorado Department of Public Safety, Division of Fire Prevention and Control. And Tom Grady is here to explain that to us. Tom Grady, Picking County Emergency Manager. I'm actually standing in for Sheriff DeSavo. I believe this is a second meeting and open for public comment. That's the way I was briefed. Uh, it's, well, it's just an administrative action item of the way it's listed yeah. on our agenda. Oh, that's right. I didn't know that. So, no second reading needed. Is, is that correct, Billy? There will be, it's an emergency, so there'll be a confirmatory hearing. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't at know some what point, the, it'll have to be published and then a confirmatory right. hearing. Okay. okay, I thought that's what we were doing today, but it's okay. <laughs> well, do you want me to explain what it is? Yeah, please. The Emergency Fire Fund is essentially a, you can look at it as an insurance policy with the state of Colorado. We've been paying into it for many years. I can only be sure we paid in for the last 10 years. And essentially it puts us into a fund that's supported by other counties. And we exceed our capabilities in, particularly financially, in wildfire um, suppression, then we can apply to this fund through the governor's office and receive financial support. It's essentially what it is. And we've been doing it for years and years, and the reason this is an emergency uh, intergovernment agreement coming through you is that the entire f fire program in the state of Colorado has been in transition for the past year, or <coughs> since last summer, actually. And so the transition has created just bureaucratic pitfalls that have slowed the process down. And we've actually had, we, we missed one last year because of the same transition. But there has been an IGA in place probably for the last 10 years that just supports this. And essentially what it is, is it just creates the guidelines on how we apply for that money and what the compliance issues are, which has a management component where the state will come in and participate and help in our incident management group during the actual fire management. Okay, questions? Rachel? Yeah, kind of a, a question and uh, a comment. Uh, do you know what the contribution for 2013 is? No, I know 2012 was 53,000. 
Okay. I, I don't know what it was because this traditionally just goes directly as an agreement with the sheriff. Yeah, and I, I would note that the memo says that this is already fully um, allocated Correct. in the sheriff's budget for 2013. Um, but it was just kind of a heads up uh, to staff as much as anything. Uh, last year during the Western District of Colorado County, Inks, there was a large discussion about this. And uh, the fund is fund is woefully inadequate. I guess is is the bottom line, and that uh, you know most counties do participate in this because uh, it is a good insurance policy. But generally, the first two fires of the year wipe it out if they're major fires, and that certainly was the case last year. So the governor's office has been talking about trying to find a way to uh, double or triple the county's contributions to this so that the state doesn't end up picking up quite as much and replenishing <coughs> the fund. So it's just something for us all to keep an eye on um, going forward that it may be more expensive, but I do fully endorse the program, and, you know, it's, uh, it's nice when you don't have to use it. I think the reality of it is, the way I understand it, is to date no county has been denied monies, even though the fund has been expired, used up. It still qualifies to apply for it, and traditionally the governor's office does find the money. Yeah, so but they're they're interested in bringing up the local participation level at some it, point in the future. But also more, because not it's not 100 percent. All counties don't qualify 100 percent. Right. But the other side of it is, is that you also once you're in it, you do qualify to, to a degree, and if you're not in it, you don't. So that's one revenue source that we can't tap if we're not participating. Oh, I I fully support being in it. Thank you. I, my question was the same as Rachel's, at least in terms of the contributions. Okay. No other further questions or comments? I would move to approve the emergency resolution approving intergovernmental agreement for participation in the emergency fire fund with the Colorado Department of Public Safety, Division of Fire Prevention and Control. Second. Any further discussion? <coughs> Seeing none, all in favor say aye. 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 Great, thank you. Appreciate it. And do we need to set a date yeah, at this it? time? Is the confirmatory hearing on the 23rd or is that too soon? I don't know. John? I'm not sure whenever it's noticed for. I, no. I don't know when it's okay. noticed. Okay. We don't out. really need to announce it here because it will be noticed okay. for whatever okay. day. All right. I'll get it from Jeanette. All right. Good. We'll let you know. Then. Right. Thank, Thank you. you. Come back. Thank you. Next on the agenda is the consent action items. This is the first reading set for public hearing on January 23rd. It's an ordinance prohibiting the consumption of alcohol on unlicensed public premises for the duration of the 2013 X Games. And someone from the Sheriff's Department was supposed to be here. We should have held on to Grady. John? <laughs> no, that's okay, Dale. I can talk and to John him. And it's only first reading. And, and yeah, it's only first reading. And Ron Ryan is typically the, uh, the person who's assigned the duty. Um, um, commissioners, this is a, an annual event for us, uh, and hopefully it will continue as the X Games continues its presence at Buttermilk. Um, the county uh, started to enact this uh, ordinance on an annual basis after, I think, two, uh, two seasons of the X Games had transpired. And we noticed there was a problem with public consumption of alcohol and, uh, and problems that uh, that, that you know, engenders, uh, particularly um, at the parking areas, uh, on the public transportation, and then outside of the venue itself. Uh, a little bit inside the venue, but the venue seemed to be uh, um, policing itself adequately, but, uh, but when people were showing up in a situation of already being somewhat in the bag, uh, it, was not, it was not 
particularly positive. So the county started to enact this prohibition for the uh, uh, possession of an open container of any alcoholic beverage or the consumption of any alcoholic beverage in any public place in Pickin County uh, that is not otherwise licensed for the consumption of alcohol. Uh, particularly, this was designed to get at those areas that I mentioned, the uh, raft of parking areas, the public transportation, and the, the queues leading up to uh, entering the venue as well as the venue itself because uh, um, alcoholic consumption is licensed for only specific areas within uh, the buttermilk area at the venue of the X Games. The, uh, the ordinance is designed basically to be done every year as a continual reminder to the public that this in fact is in place. We don't need to do it every year. We could simply have it done once and be done with it. Uh, but it seems to be a good practice to have this as a reminder. And we set it up to be done as closely to the time when the X Games are going to uh, be ongoing as possible. So we'll have this date as a first reading and then the next board meeting will be a second uh, reading and a public hearing. Uh, and the ordinance will go into effect almost immediately and will run coterminous more or less with the X Games. It will run from January 23rd and will end uh, uh, of its own terms without any further action of the board on January 28th of this year when the X Games are concluded. Um, the fine for a violation of the ordinance is $250. It has been enforced over the years in the past, but the enforcement, act, enforcement activities uh, um, do not generate that many uh, violation tickets, summons and complaints, uh, but generate more of a, an awareness, I think, and, and, uh, and uh, a public consciousness that this type of activity shouldn't be going on. Uh, and also, um, over the years, has not seemed to dampen the enjoyment of the X Games whatsoever, and so it asked the board to entertain this on the first reading and set the matter for a public hearing two weeks from now. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Uh, John, with the recent legalization of marijuana, um, should we consider uh, also the ban the use of marijuana? We could uh, we could state it just as a I suppose an affirmation or a or a uh, a sort of uh, another element of public awareness. But Amendment 64 did not allow for the public consumption of marijuana either through smoking or any other uh, method, uh, and so it's actually not legal now. So we we wouldn't need to take any other further steps for law enforcement to be able to act on that. Um, to be honest with you, I haven't heard any requests from, from law enforcement to expand the ordinance, so I haven't thought about it. Uh, it's so so uh, if you're smoking in your car, it's legal, but if you're smoking outside of your car, it's not? Well, to be honest with you, I'm not sure how that would cut. Uh, it's, uh, the, and the fact that you would be in your car implicates a lot of other regulations. Right. Um, but you're so not, you know, you're in a parking lot, you just, it's been there for 12 hours, you have no intention of going anywhere, it's your home for that amount of time. Uh, I suppose. Um, if the board wants to consider expanding it to include the, uh, the public consumption of marijuana, we might. You know, we, this particular action is authorized in state statute already as our role as the um, uh, alcohol um, control entity, you know, the local government has that authority already, counties and municipalities as well. 
there isn't any specific statutory authorization in regards to marijuana one way or the other at this point, the only change in the law being the recently enacted amendment. But, like I said, you know, there's a way to, it probably would not have much in the way of a legal effect, but it would perhaps serve as a reminder that alcohol being prohibited does not mean that you're free to, you know, smoke marijuana. I think we have the question because I think it's complicated, the amendment was complicated. Really, our law is in many ways and has implications for public safety and public intoxication, just like alcohol. And we just haven't dealt with it yet. So I'm just asking the question. Your comments or thoughts on that, Rachel? Well, I know that the governor has now put together his task force for implementing Amendment 64 and that there's any number of very large issues that they're grappling with. Whether inside your car is public or private is one of those issues. Whether because you have marijuana in your car, are you intoxicated or not is an issue. And how do they determine that standard of driving under the influence or driving while impaired? What does it mean? I don't have answers to those items. I'm glad the governor is putting together a task force. But I'm not sure that we wouldn't get into a preemptive state by trying to say that inside your cars is not your private property and that we have enforcement ability there. And I think the question would be, do we want to become the test case to take that to the Supreme Court in a battle that, you know, we have a right to prosecute someone who we believe smoked or is smoking in their car. And I think that to the extent individuals have or do things like that, our sheriff's officers have a pretty good grip on, you know, warning them, saying this is not allowed, you know, this is a public area and you can't be smoking in a public area. So the question is, if you roll down the window, are you suddenly smoking in a public area? Or if you roll down the ramp, are you in a private area? I don't know. But I'm just saying I'm not so sure we want to create a test case over the X Games about it. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it's a good point that Michael brought up. And I think we're waiting to hear how the legislative comes down on this in terms of rules and regulations. But I think at this point, I think we know that it's illegal to smoke or buy any other products, marijuana products in public places. And I think that should suffice for at least this X Games. Next year's may be another story. Brad? Well, I think it's interesting that you said we know. But I think the visitors coming to Colorado most likely don't know. And I guess it's a separate subject in this ordinance. But I think someone should advise the X Games and our, you know, RAFTA for signs or whatever to let people know that the law is you cannot do it in public. Because then we may end up becoming a test, you know, county when all of a sudden our sheriff's department is bringing people in because they are smoking it in public. When people think that, I would venture to say that out-of-state visitors that haven't read, and a lot of in-state people that haven't read, you know, the battle question, that they think that it's legal here as a... I know. And it's a real challenge because at the other end of that, equally as there's no 
legalized sale of recreational marijuana yeah. yet. So where are those tourists getting their product? Are they bringing it in, or you know what? So you know, I, I don't I don't know that we. I don't believe it belongs in this ordinance, but. Um, I think it's something that should be handled specifically around X Games. Uh, yeah, and I just brought it up because I think it's a new challenge for us. And uh, I think generally what the purpose or the thrust of this ordinance is is that these X Games are not about intoxication of any sort. They're about the enjoyment of the various sports celebrated at the, at the X Games, and uh, intoxication has no place there whatsoever. And, I, and that's that's really the the gist of what I was trying to get at. So yeah, no, I think that was a good point. So can I agree to uh, move this ordinance forward to this year with motion? I will make a motion. You, have a, you don't have a motion yet, do you? No. I'd move to approve the ordinance pro prohibiting the consumption of alcohol <laughs> on unlicensed public premises for the duration of the 2013 X Games. Second. Any further discussion? Seeing none, all in favor say aye. 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 Thank you. Next we'll have to our confirmatory reading and public hearing. Uh, the first is an emergency resolution of the Board of County Commissioners of Pickett County, Colorado, acting on behalf of the Pickett County Department of Health and Human Service, approving an intergovernmental agreement with the Board of County Commissioners of Garfield County, acting on behalf of the Garfield County Department of Human Services for the provision of child support enforcement services. And Nan Sundin is here as our Director of Health and Human Services. Welcome in. Good afternoon. This is a second reading, confirmatory hearing. Uh, we have been contracting with Garfield County for the provision of child support enforcement services for probably over 10 years. Um, it's a great efficiency for us. They do it uh, very inexpensively, and they are able to um, assist families uh, to make sure that all parents pay their fair share of child support. Um, they determine uh, parentage, they, uh, they help in court, and then they actually recover the fees. And the way it works in the state of Colorado is um, the counties actually get to keep a small portion of the fees that they recover as incentives. So the way that we pay Garfield County is we have a small contract, I think it's about $6,000 to provide the service, and then we give them our incentives. Hmm. Uh, so everything they collect, they keep, and that's how we support that service. So we're very fortunate that Garfield County is willing to do this for us and um, because it's the kind of thing where you develop um, specialty and best practice the more volume you have, uh, it's really even better for us that our Pigman County residents get such highly skilled services from Garfield County. Any questions or comments? This is a public hearing. Anybody wishing to comment on this? Seeing them, we'll close the public hearing on this matter and bring it back to the board for a motion. I'll make a motion to approve the emergency resolution of the Board of County Commissioners, Picking County, Colorado, acting on behalf of the Picking County. Do we have to meet as the Picking County Health and 
You don't have to do this action as a Board of Social Services. Is that your question? That's my question. It's a budgetary decision and contract. Picking County Health and Human Services Department approving the intergovernment agreement with the Board of County Commissioners of Garfield County acting on behalf of the Garfield County Department of Human Services for the provision of child support enforcement services. Any further discussion? Just a quick reminder that in this resolution it also authorizes me to sign the contract budget pending for the next five years so that we can keep this agreement going and we don't have to get tripped up in here. So just a reminder. Okay, thank you. And again, this is an emergency resolution, so this will come again back to us. No, this is the second one. Oh, this is the second one. I didn't say that on this. Okay. Thank you. All in favor? I'm sorry. All in favor, say aye. Aye. Great. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. Next we have another emergency ordinance, Amendment Ordinance 07-2012, an authorization to sign style property acquisition. Dale Rowe is here from Open Space. Thanks, George. Michael's no longer the chair. I did bring a map. Do we want to fire it up and project that? Sure, we've got time. Do I know how to do this, folks? That's a question. strategic location and uh, it is one that um, 
that the myriad jurisdictions with an interest in this have deemed uh, worthy of uh, public purchase. We have thought that we would need to close by year-end, and in fact that did not happen um, based on a very almost clerical problem of getting the rather complicated closing file involved in this transaction together to an extent that it could be reviewed and approved um, by all the partners. Nonetheless, Mr. Saltstall is still quite anxious to close this transaction. We're thankful that he's continuing to want us to have a, a chance to actually complete this project. And um, we... Uh, We want to confirm this ordinance to stay in the strongest position we can to complete the project. Uh, although the ordinance was drafted to say it is amending the 2012 budget, uh, if confirmed, that appropriation will remain available to the county to proceed with this. Um, we are still negotiating some of the the detail needed to complete this transaction. Um, as I mentioned, it is rather complicated, and now we have our map up where we can see it. And um, you can see on the, the map that's being projected, the solid yellow area is approximately 143 acres that the county uh, would acquire an outright ownership in subject to a conservation easement that would be held by Eagle County and the town of Basalt. Uh, the current owner will retain a small property that is kind of in the elbow of this, this yellow area, and to get to it needs access easements for, for both their physical access as well as utilities. Um, and also the, the owner is retaining his BLM grazing rights up on the crown for as long as he also retains nearby land. As a result of all of those things, there are access easements that have to be worked out and, and um, drawing the maps and getting the legal descriptions on all that is, is really the last thing we have to complete here. Um, so what I, I want to ask today is that this ordinance be um, confirmed uh, with the caveat that before we actually would proceed to exercise this authority that uh, certainly you might want to have a, a final briefing uh, from the county attorney about the preparedness uh, of all of the complicated file I was just describing and um, so, so notwithstanding the confirmation of this ordinance staff is, is quite happy, in fact, expects to, to be back in front of you uh, in, a, in an exact briefing on just what our, our rationale is for proceeding to, with the authority in this ordinance, which would be to expend the Pickens County funds to close the project uh, in anticipation of reimbursement as provided in the existing agreements we have with GOCO. Eagle County and the town of Basalt. So, Dan, in essence, what you're asking is to keep this option open and keep
keep the flexibility uh, in case it is needed. Correct. Okay, thank you. Questions? Comments? Yeah. <coughs> one of the one of the things that you mentioned, Dale, is that we would keep this funding available to move forward with this, but that we would have some sort of briefing to inform us as a board on the uh, the finalization of the various negotiations, mainly pursuant to some of the things that you just mentioned. Um, does that need to be included in this uh, in this ordinance to some extent, or does is, is staff direction enough? And I guess this is a question for the board: Is staff direction enough assurance that we're going to have that briefing to make sure that the negotiations went in the favorable direction that we wanted them to get? I don't think we need to amend the ordinance, but I think you could make it part of the motion that I move to approve with the understanding that staff will return to us in executive session before authorize, uh, before exercising any of this authority. Does that work for you, Ralph? Yeah, it works for me, great. Okay. This is a public hearing. Anybody wishing to comment on this? Santa, I'll close the public hearing. Motion? I'll make a motion to uh, approve the emergency ordinance amending ordinance 07 2012 and authorizing the Stalton Saul property acquisition with the express condition that staff return to the board to discuss the preparedness of all the documentation in executive session before uh, exercising this authority. Second. Okay. Any further discussion? Seeing none, all in favor say aye. 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 Okay, thank you, Dave. Thank you. Okay, we're on to our long-list public hearings. First is the Bonner Council Subdivision PD Details sub Submission and Final Plat, Long Point Models Major Plat Amendment, and Activity Envelope Subcommon Line for Common Parcel 2. This is the first running that Susanna Wolf is going to present. the Royal Fork Meadows subdivision. Uh, this is the Rio Grande Trail 
basalt old snowmass trail travels on the, the upper edge of those lots. So if you recall, the, we, you approved our conceptual submission, the subdivision of the Barna parcel into two lots, and those two lots would be lot six and seven, six and seven, in the Roaring Fork Meadows subdivision. So we were amending the Roaring Fork Meadows PUD to include those lots as well as um, the subdivision of these two lots. Um, I think you remember the various issues we went through at the time regarding the appropriateness of including that within the Roaring Fork Meadows subdivision, um, the issues related to lot area, et cetera, that I think were all settled as part of that conceptual submission approval. So now we're just at detailed submission um, and final plat related to that subdivision and the amendment um, to the existing subdivision. And then as part of the request in front of you today, um, if you recall, this common parcel two that goes down by the river, so you cross over the Rio Grande Trail and drop down. There's currently under the former, the original approvals for Rainfield Meadows, there is an envelope approved up on this little bench next to the trail um, for a recreational facility as part of the um, conceptual submission approval. Um, you added some additional limitations to that, including a size limitation for that facility, um, size, height, restriction, other types of restrictions. And also, we're willing to um, um, consider an alternative location for that envelope if they could meet the requirements of the code, the 40 floodplain, et cetera. So there is a request in front of you to move, relocate that envelope from this bench right up by the trail to a bench that's a little bit farther down, um, but still essentially there are kind of three levels here. There's this upper level, um, kind of a middle level where the envelope would be, and then you drop farther down and you get down to the area by the river. Um, so this envelope that's in here is, is part of the request that's in front of you today. So that's kind of the general layout. Um, this being detailed submission is kind of a, you know, addressing the final remaining issues um, that are outstanding. Um, actually, maybe I'll start with that um, common parcel too, just quickly. Um, it does, this envelope that has been proposed does meet the code. It avoids the 100-year floodplain. It meets the 100-foot setback from the high water line. Um, I think what was, you know, when it was looked at before, it was if this did meet those requirements, it was seen as a better location in that it's farther from the trail, it's not visible from the trail, it's not as visible from the neighboring properties, um, it's definitely a more secluded location, um, and, uh, and it does incorporate all of the restrictions that were previously required. Um, it meets the, the square footage limitation, the height limitation, um, it's not going to have complete facilities, um, it will have a composting type toilet, um, We'll have electricity, but again, it doesn't have full, full amenities um, in terms of looking like a dwelling unit. It's, it's intended to be a, a recreational facility for the use of the owners of the seven lots. Um, so that does comply with the code. Um, with that change in the envelope, they have asked for this to be basically just a landscaping envelope. Um, so right now it's just basically a kind of a patch of weeds, um, and so they would like to do some improvements there. Um, on that area, so that's why it's, it basically changes to a, a landscaping envelope. Um, so we, we support that request for the change to that envelope. And then we'll just quickly walk through the issues I um, had in my memo. Um, the first being the, the request for vested rights. Um, the applicant is requesting a 10-year vested right for the entire subdivision, so all seven lots. Um, 
and essentially with the subdivision, the new subdivision of the barter parcel standard, um, the standard vested right would be three years associated with that. Um, the Royal Fork Meadows vested rights, they got originally, I think that was a 10-year vested right also, that it runs out in 2015. Um, so essentially the applicant was looking for a longer vested right in total, as well as combining the vested rights for the seven lots, so they're not trying to track separate vested rights for the two new lots versus the vested rights for the other lots. Um, when the PNC discussed this, um, they kind of agreed that they thought a, a longer than three-year vested right was appropriate, but didn't sort of come to the point of, of coming up with a specific number. Um, so that was kind of left un, unsaid. Um, staff's recommendation at this point um, is that you know there have been a lot of benefits associated with this subdivision and the growth management with the barn parcel. Those are commitments that have been made. You know, often the conversation regarding the extension of vested rights is, you know, is there additional public benefit associated with this? Um, we didn't really find that that, um, that standard was met, um, but we said, so let's do three years from today for the entire subdivision, which would basically provide a very, you know, probably a six-month extension approximately for the existing Royal Fork Meadows lots. Um, so not much, but, but essentially then at least they would track similarly with, with the barter lots. So they would, all seven lots would be under the same vested right at that point. So we just re recommended the standard um, three-year vested right. Uh, other issues, not so much needing discussion. Um, the growth management covenant, they had submitted that. A revised one was provided with specific um, timeframes. Um, that is, is consistent with what was com the commitments that were made and the timeframes are acceptable, so we're good with that. Uh, we discussed the recreational facility on Common Parcel 2. Um, we have asked for a little bit more detail to be provided on that site plan. Um, right now it just, you know, it does kind of show the envelope and a footprint of the building. They've talked about landscaping, but that hasn't really been shown. So um, we'd like to have that, see that um, before second, at second reading. Um, so, so we can just review that um, before we get through the, the approval. And the last issue was the prohibition of commercial agricultural activities. This was addressed through in the original um, Roy Fork Meadows subdivision, um, which was actually done before we had the provision that exists in the code today. There was a condition included, and that was put in their um, PUD guide. Um, I did want to check on that with, with John Ely. Um, to see if that language was adequate, if that would just continue forward for the subdivision, or if we should bring forward the, the covenant that we now require related to that. Um, and, he, and he prefers to have that covenant in place. So that would just be an additional document that it would be recorded. It would essentially replace the language that's in the PUD guide now and would place that requirement over all the seven residential lots um, on the, in, in the subdivision. So. Um, with that, we're recommending approval um, subject to conditions. There are a few little tweaks we can discuss when, um, when we get to that point, but otherwise I'm happy to answer any questions you have. Yeah, Rachel? Yeah. Um, our Planning and Zoning Commission recommended that there be a site plan review for all of the lots, the two new lots plus the five existing. And um, as written, lots one through five would not be subject to site plan review um, for the entirety of the new vesting 
Yeah, essentially the way I looked at it was if the PNC was looking at allowing a longer vested right for everything, again, sort of unknown number, but longer, that we should then definitely apply site plan review. The way I'm recommending with just the three-year vested right, lots one through five today do not require site plan review through October of 2015. This extension gives them another six months, and so I sort of felt if all I'm doing is a standard vested right, I can, I can sort of find my way to saying, we're not going to require site plan review on you through that time period. But then once that vested right is done, after those three years, you are subject to site plan review, um, no question at that point. But So again, I was looking at it as if, if we are going to go into the realm of granting some extension, some beyond three-year um, vested right, then I think, then I thought definitely we would want to have a conversation about when site plan review should apply. But for this, all, all they're getting is another six months. months. So okay. I felt, you know, that, that it wasn't necessary. To Thank you for it. explaining the logic. Sure. Any questions for Suzanne? Do the connection relates back on, or otherwise I'm going to fall asleep? <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, Mitch, would you like to introduce yourself and your partner there? And Absolutely. Listen to your presentation. Thank you. Uh, for the record, I'm Mitch Haas with Haas Land Planning, and this is Scott Russell, who's the uh, project manager. Is that the profile? Owner's representative. Let's see. Yeah, I didn't have a real extensive presentation. It hasn't been all that long since we were here for the conceptual approvals, where we really did work through everything in pretty good detail. There's nothing new in the proposal from where we left off. It's just more dotting the I's and crossing the T's since then. Um, the only little thing that would be new is we, we addressed needing, wanting to vary the setbacks for Lot 7 only to really allow the development and activity envelope to be better clustered with where all the other lots are. Uh, rather than pushing it out into the meadow, being able to be up in the corner of that lot. Lot 7 is the, right. the existing barter residences. And our, our feeling is the only people who would be impacted by decreasing the two setbacks up in that corner are my client. Uh, so the pushing the envelope, lots. basically, to Interesting. this corner. Pushing which is in, Yeah, yes. which is internal to the subdivision, basically. Uh, so that's really the only thing new in our proposal, other than the vested rights discussion. Uh, so, uh, with regard to all of the other parts besides vested rights, I can say we're no issues with the staff memo or the recommendations. Uh, the only condition we discuss discussed with Suzanne was about the requirement to record everything. There's a lot of documents to be recorded within 180 days, asking that if we could say 180 days unless extended by the community development director. Sometimes these things take longer than 180 days for some reason, no matter how hard you try to get it done sooner. Um, so that was it for the conditions of approval. The, the discussion about an agricultural, commercial agricultural covenant versus just leaving it in the PUD guide as it already is, we don't have an issue with that. It's the same effect. Um, we've, uh, I've recently worked through one of those covenants with John on a different property, so I think we could just use that as a boilerplate. Uh, <laughs> I think Lenny's still working on it, but same one that we're still, I think we could just do that and then, you know, we'd probably just, instead of having actual language in the PUD guide, reference the covenant as a separate document. So that gets us just to the vested rights discussion, I think, or at least gets me there. I don't know how everybody else feels. Um, 
with the vested rights, you know, there, there are a lot of reasons we're, we're looking for a longer period than the standard three years. Adding the three years, uh, you know, basically takes lots one through five and gives them four more months than they already have. It goes from October 12th to, if we can presume, I know it's not right to, but if we presume that given the scheduling now that this project would be uh, is scheduled for second reading on January 23rd, it's really about a four-month extension. Um, we, we feel like, one, this whole subdivision kind of sat dormant for a significant chunk of that 10-year period with the previous owner going through financial issues and eventually uh, the bank foreclosing on the property and then the property having to be bought from a bank and basically nothing happened for several years out there uh, beyond anyone now at the table's control. Um, and then since then, with the whole effort we've been in uh, for, I don't know, two years and change now in dealing with this lot, well, you know, not, not that it, there's anything wrong with how long it's taken, but just that nothing else has really been going on because uh, the, the idea is to plan the whole subdivision's development and know what we're planning. Uh, we didn't have any certainty and still don't really with, with regard to these two lots and how they fit in or don't. So a lot of that 10-year period, probably four years plus, has been sitting there not in anything happening. Um, we, we have six lots, if this should be approved here, six lots remaining to be developed, as only lot one has been developed to date. Typically, you know, when you go through the county's site plan review process or some other approval, one home, you get three years to, to rely on your approvals. You know, to, to stick with six lots to develop and have that same three-year period uh, is a, a difficult proposition, uh, you know, given who knows what happens financially uh, with the economy or just the owner's ability to do that much in that amount of time. Not to mention the impacts it would put on our neighbors uh, to have that much development having to occur within a three-year period because we're some fear of what might happen or, or some reliance in the future. Um, so that, that's kind of reason one why we feel like we need to ask for a longer period than the standard three years. Um, Beyond that, you know, it always involves a discussion of uh, what are the public benefits of a property. And yes, a lot of them uh, we've committed to, regardless of the vested rights discussion. But uh, hopefully that doesn't mean that those are discounted and don't, aren't worth considering in light of what we're requesting. Because there are quite a few public benefits. Uh, I'd rather not go through all of them, uh, but I did list you know, basically a page of them in bullet points in the letter requesting the vested rights extended period. And of those, only three of them were previous uh, previous commitments. The rest of them were all commitments that happened with this part of parcel subdivision. Um, and we've even gone above and beyond that lately. Uh, for, Scott's been working with the owners of the Hogan Hogan Ranch subdivision, whose uh, fire protection pond is uh, inadequate, leaking, needs to be lined, uh, needs a lot of improvement, and they can't afford to do it. Uh, and Scott's in the middle of working on an agreement with them to finance it, to provide them a, lo a loan to get it done sooner than later. Um, you know, so we've been, we've been real good neighbors uh, in that regard, uh, not to mention just how well this property owner, this, this applicant's gone with cleaning up this property, uh, rectifying 
previous violations that the last owner had on the property, you know, doing the right thing everywhere as best as he can. So, you know, where we are is, yes, we did request to add, to make it a new 10-year period. We're not asking that the 10 years start October of 2015 when the other ones end, but would be from today, or not today, from whenever the final approval was, in two weeks, I guess, if we stay on schedule. So that's where we're coming from, is really, you know, and also wanting to have a continuity and consistency of rules throughout the subdivision, so that we don't have lots one through five under these rules, lots six and seven under these rules. At some point in time, they change over, and now they're different for everybody. You know, we want anyone buying or considering buying a lot in anywhere in this subdivision, or developing a lot anywhere in this subdivision, to simply know the rules, be able to read the PUD guide, and rely on it as applicable, at least for the same amount of period, regardless of which lot you're looking at. So that's where we're coming from, and knowing with vested rights extensions that we're not vesting ourselves, or protecting, if you will, from any changes in impact fees the county would adopt. We recognize that the impact fees are what they are, whatever they are at the time of building permit, so if the county has some impact fee increase, we wouldn't be protected from those. So there shouldn't be any financial burden on the county by extending the vested rights either. So just to put that on the record, we recognize that. I've stated as much in the letter, so it's in writing as well, that no one should show up later arguing that they're subject to a new impact fee because they were vested in whatever year. That's about my, all I think I really need to cover on the vested rights. We're trying to come at it from a reasonable position. We're not trying to be greedy, if you will, in asking for too much. First question is, Mitch, are you okay with the recommendation, if we grant additional vested rights, that you would have site plan review on the additional first five lots that? I think we could live with that, honestly, yeah. Yeah, we'd rather be subject to site plan review than the greater degree of uncertainty that could come with knowing that we're not going to be developing all of these in three years. Okay. My next question is, and I guess at the discretion of the board, I think it would be helpful for me, because you've listed them in bullet points, but it's a little unclear as to what all these public benefits are. If you did go through those bullet points a little bit more detail, and again, if it's okay with the board to take that time, it would be helpful for me. And also explaining which are already committed to and which aren't, as you said, because you kind of said three were and three and the rest aren't. Is that okay? Thank you. Okay, so if you want to follow with me at all, it's on page, well, it's shown as page nine of a lot of what I've printed out as the packet. Page three of your letter. Okay, yeah, three of my letter. I don't even know what the paging sequencing is. So the previous commitments that I've mentioned in here, meaning part of the old Moro approvals, not part of what we've done with BARDA, included a conservation easement 
that covers all of the significant wildlife habitat on the upper reaches of the properties. How far as we go through each one? It's, it's everything above the upper ditch on the property. So there's a conservation easement over yeah, all of that land on top. Uh, that was granted to Picking County Open Space, I believe, if I remember correctly. Uh, there was a one-acre tract given to Picking County Open Space and Travels at the corner there, right where it meets the highway overpass for pedestrians and bikes. Uh, that was granted to Picking County and just given that one-acre tract for that trailhead parking area. Uh, and we've placed those four historic cabins on the property. We had those placed on the historic register uh, and have committed to restoring those cabins. So those were all done previously uh, on throughout several rounds of approvals that are not related to this barter parcel. Now with regard to the barter parcel, um, whether it was in relation to the growth management or the subdivision or whatever it was, but with regard to the, the barter parcel, uh, a 20-foot easement is being platted with this major plat amendment subdivision plat uh, for a portion to cover a portion of the Hoagland Ranch Road uh, and on the common parcel one. And what that does is provides uh, improved fire protection and access to the neighboring properties. Uh, the road that's there, one, doesn't have an adequate easement, and two, is really insufficient in width. Uh, Bill, Bill Harding said he can't get up there and needs some improvements done, and so we've done that uh, to help with the fire marshal and the neighboring property owners. Uh, related to that also, the Hoagland Ranch property owners uh, tend to park a lot of vehicles, boats, snowmobiles, what's, whatnot, on this property, on Common Parcel 1, and encroach further into what's already the limited access. So we are providing them with an actual sufficient depth parking area easement to accommodate the storage of those things, cars and parking, uh, without impeding fire protection and access. Uh, we have an agreement to complete an augmentation plan uh, that will keep all the ponds on the property filled year-round. Um, and help with you know, stream flows, help with fire protection, etc. Uh, let's see, there's a commitment to retaining all the irrigation water rights on this property and tying them to this land so that it can't be separately sold or transferred. Uh, let's see, where am I up to? Uh, we have an agreement in place, part of the growth management covenant, to work with open space and trials to do one of two things at their choice. Uh, either construct a parking area on that tract one that had been previously given to them uh, and landscaping with it, since it's never actually been approved yet, uh, or to donate $10,000 towards a planned bridge landing area for connection of Lazy Glen to the Rio Grande Trail. Uh, that's something that's planned to be done but not quite, not budgeted yet. Uh, we have placed, or added to the existing agricultural easement for Roaring Fork Meadows, uh, expanded it onto lot six and seven, and including commitments to continue actually irrigating those areas and utilizing them, the agricultural areas and the entire subdivision, uh, returning the, and returning previously disturbed areas that have been out of agricultural use back to agricultural use, mainly alongside the trail. Uh, the right one? So there's a big area right in here alongside the bike path that's just been really 
decimated uh, over the years and looks sort of like a uh, lumber yard more than anything else. Uh, that whole area will be returned to agricultural use, irrigated, uh, which sounds like not that big a deal, but when you walk or ride on that bike path, uh, it'll have a big impact. Uh, there's also going to be agreed to not just limit the floor area on lot six and seven to 57.50 with no, you know, extra for basements and as is allowed on the other lots. Um, but lot seven has uh, got a smaller height limit, limited to 19 foot six, which was a 30% reduction from the allowable height limit of 28 feet. And uh, there was the, and now what we're doing or trying to do through this process now is relocate that recreational facilities envelope that Suzanne was talking about up here, which sits right next to our neighbor's house and right next to the bike path, uh, and moving it down to an area below that's really well hidden. And given the limit we placed the conceptual approvals of 20 feet on that recreational facility cabin, 20 feet to its ridge line, that ridge line will be lower and will be below the bike path. Uh, the, the ground down there is more than 20 feet below the bike path level. That makes sense. So, all of those are kind of current commitments that we think go towards, you know, not just helping the subdivision, but really do help the neighbors, the public, uh, are good benefits to county goals and policies in general. Um, I think that covers it. Well, I mean, I could add some ongoing, I guess, benefits that we continue to work on that. They're, they're tangible in a way, but they're not documented. One, Mitch mentioned the loan that we are giving to the Holden Ranch HOA because for the GMQS, we were to contribute to fixing that pond liner and getting that hybrid working, but we're just one house out of 13 that are over there, and, and so we are providing the money to fix that. We've worked with Bill Harding. I've met with him out there several times to give him what he wants and also provide financing to the homeowners and hold them ranch HOA so that we can get it done. We started this fall, we'll finish in the spring with a new liner. So there'll be fire protection for all those homes. Um, the owner has stocked all the ponds with fish. There's now life in those ponds. Uh, I don't know if any of you have been out there when the previous owner had this property, but the ponds were dead. There were holes in the liners. They couldn't hold water. Here and then there's a big pond there. So we've stocked those with fish. Um, neighbors, have, when they request, have been permitted to come fish on the property, walk dogs on the property, access trails up above through the property. So the owner has done neighborly things, I guess is the best way to put it, that are tangible, that I should point out. Um, they continue to buy maintenance equipment to keep the experience from the bike path, looking up over the ag land, enjoyable. <clears throat> they maintain it, they cut it, they irrigate it. Uh, we've got a snow plow this year so we can maintain all the roads for fire protection internally ourselves. Those kind of efforts <clears throat> continue to go on and will. The owner is doing the right thing, as Mitch mentioned. I just mentioned this, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, I think that as we had some lengthy discussions uh, when we first looked at this proposal before us and we looked at uh, adding uh, the addition of two lots as part of the overall subdivision, uh, that a lot of these points were part of that negotiation in terms of getting the board to agree to that 
to those lots in objection to a lot of the neighbors. And that, those were lengthy discussions. I remember that we were negotiating back and forth in terms of what we would uh, felt would be appropriate uh, given what the original ask was in terms of the addition of lots in those building sites. So I just want to remind the board that, that that was a discussion, at least how I remember it. No question. I don't disagree with that. No, that's what I was trying to say. You know, uh, I'm not trying to say that these were tied to requests for the vested rights, but they're good. They're worthy of considering, at least as you know, showing that we're tied to doing the right things here and providing benefits, and you know, shouldn't just be discounted as separate from a whole discussion of vested rights. Yeah. Yeah, a couple of questions. I think they're mostly for Suzanne, but uh, if you guys want to chime in at any point. Um, I realize that vesting does not protect someone, or maybe it's Lance as well, from changes to impact fees or fees. Uh, those are what is at the time of the building permits pulled and so on. Uh, but what about changes in the code that we may consider and adopt relating to handicapped accessibility or things like that? Would they be exempt from any new code, building code changes, whether it's electrical, fire, energy efficiency, or, or handicap access? That would all be rules of general applicability. So all of that would, would apply. Whether it's vesting or not. Right, right. Okay. Vesting or not. Okay. So that, the vesting really just relates to land use code. Okay. Thank you for that clarification. That is our understanding as well. Okay. And then the other question is, the existing five lots, what is their floor area allowed Ratio. Are they, are they 8,200 lots or? 8,250. 8,250. Yeah. They're 5750 above grade and 2,500 below. 5750 above and 2,500 below? Yeah. Okay. And so if, if those expired, you know, let's just say, you know, I'm trying to understand the hypothetical here, but if uh, the time ran out and they expired and it had not been built yet, uh, they would then be subject to the new code. And so would that mean that they still would have the right to go up to the 8250 as long as they obtained a TDR? Well, actually, their approval right now, the, the subgrade space for each of those lots um, was provided as a historic incentive. So for the, originally it was to be a TDR, and then that was changed when they designated the cabins to the historic register. Okay. They get that 2,500 square feet exempt as their incentive for that designation. So, I don't know, I don't think there would be, I mean, short of the code suddenly saying all you can build is less than that, you know, then, yeah. then they would be still be able to build up to that 8,250. And that was for lots two through five. Lot one actually bought and extinguished right. a TDR that's for its basement. Okay. The one that's been built. Yeah, because I was just trying to understand for myself the difference that may occur should there be an extension. I mean, I, I have to say I'm, I'm tempted, certainly not by 10 years. <laughs> that is very long. But, and the, the additional public benefit to me uh, would be seeing those lots go through site plan review. And I, I could uh, put something on the table and see what my colleagues feel like, but I could see going to a five-year extension and with the condition that there is site plan review for those other lots. I would feel comfortable with that. I'm so would I. <coughs> Susan, what, what would that mean uh, when I'm going through site review 
for those lots one through five versus what we've already done. I mean, what substantial changes would? Well, essentially, I mean, right now all they have approved on all of these lots is envelopes, activity envelopes. So the site plan review would be coming in with the actual house design, um, landscaping, whatever other improvements that we would be able to review that. Standard procedure with that is that's an administrative, you know, staff level review. Neighbors get noticed, they have the opportunity to, you know, come see what the specific plans are for a lot versus, you know, today those remaining four lots in Roaring Fork Meadows can come in and get a building permit. They do not have to go through that extra step of that more detailed review of what's happening within the envelope until their current vesting period expires. Okay, so with your suggestion, recommendation, Rachel, with that five-year vesting, that means that before anything would happen on these lots one through five, they would have to go through site review. Whereas, whereas if we just uh, use staff recommendations of just a three-year with a small addition, uh, they would not need to do any site review until the end of those three three plus years. Correct. Okay. And just one note to that is, I mean, lot one is developed. Um, at this point in time. So it's only four I guess, lots. Right. I mean, I guess we could keep it in there in terms of if somebody did decide to start all over again, I guess. <laughs> 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 plan review on that lot. So, but just at this point, you know, they have developed the one, but definitely the remaining lots would um, So, Sam, just to further elaborate on, on George's question, because it's good for my education as well, um, are there times when you look at a site plan review and say, you know, you got to change that, or this is too uh, obtrusive, or there's not enough landscaping. I mean, how, is it really kind of a pro forma rubber stamp? You brought in your site, now we're good with it, or are there, are there tweaks? Uh, Definitely, when tweaks happen. Um, mentioned that, <laughs> but, but yeah, you know, it depends upon the you know the character. The you know, um, and and a lot of it has to do with you know what impacts on the neighbors. I mean, in this case, obviously, lot six and seven, which are subject to site plan review, but, you know, maybe the most sensitive, more, are most right, more sensitive to the neighbors than these other ones are. But the other ones, you know, are going to be visible, you know, from the trail above. You know, I mean, they definitely, um, you know, there, there are there is public impact from them. So so yeah, I mean, we can look at those, and yes, things do get tweaked through those processes, sometimes, sometimes not. Okay. Give the neighbors a chance to know beforehand and see it. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I saw a with Rachel's recommendations for agreement of the five-year vesting uh, with the caveat that they would have to go through those last months would also have to go through site review. I mean, we, we need to see if that's acceptable but it is uh, an additional 24 months. and. Gives you a little more time. Well, my only, I guess, <clears throat> issue, I don't even know if it's an issue, but I would have to get authorization because what I'm hearing you say is you would take away, in a sense, the vesting that is existing on lots one through five till 2015 that do not require site plan review and giving an additional, or giving five years of site plan review from day one or site plan review starting in 2015. No, I would say site plan review starting now, but that would get you all the way to 2018. Correct. With the vesting. And I, I think that's a significant benefit to you. Um, it just depends on whether, you know, you're comfortable with the site plan review on those uh, other lots. Right. And so that, yeah, it takes risk off the table for those additional years 
I just don't have the authorization to say we can commit to site plan review on one through five right, starting today. That. Well, then we have a second reading on this yeah. anyway, so there's an opportunity. I think it's a reasonable. I think it's very large, personally. Yeah, you know, I, would, I would float the notion of instead of just saying five years, maybe call it three years from the current expiration date, which is five years and a few months. I, I don't see any reason to extend the vesting if we're not getting the benefit of site plan review, you know. It's just ending in January versus October gives you one more building season. That's the difference is what I'm talking about. But I mean, three years from the expiration date, but with the site plan review from day one is what I'm saying. Instead of just five years from January, five years from, three years from whatever the date was. So October, October of 2018 rather than January of 2018. It puts one more building season into it. Well, I don't know how my, my colleagues feel. I, I wasn't trying to make a six-year offer or five well, and a half. Five, five, it's like five and a half, but yeah. <laughs> Given the building season, I think it's a reasonable request, and I'm okay with the additional whatever it is for five months. Yeah. Well, the only thing is that if you're going to be building during that building season, you're going to be putting your site plan in, and you're going to be pulling your permits. And once you start to pull your permits, that alone extends your vesting. So if you were if you were getting ready to to build and use the summer of 2018, you know that beginning that process would would get you there. I think for most people, get their permits in like April or May. Okay. <laughs> well, maybe we can think of a different so. in between date, but building the building season, especially the Mid Valley, people are are digging holes now and they're pouring cement in Aspen now. So, you know, with the with the building you know, the building season is ongoing. So I can support Rachel's suggestion. I, uh, overall I'm really not supportive of the extension of vesting rights with your uh, uh, with your arguments before us, but I see Rachel's suggestion as a benefit for the neighbors as well as a public benefit. So I can support that, but I, personally I would just limit it to the five years and, and not try to do any more finagling on it. Just one additional point on the vested rights is that actually if they are required to go through site plan review, when they get that site plan review approval, that has its own vested right associated with it. So then basically that's a three-year vested right. So right. if they come in within the five-year time period, to get the site plan review, at least they have bought themselves more time where they actually have to build. So it does extend that That's out. That's out. Yeah. So um, you have to get back to your owners, and we'll have this come before us again if that's agreeable. Yeah, um, but I personally think the concept's sound, and the yeah. owner will agree. I just I can't. So. I understand. And so, yeah, okay. asking John Ely if. If we pass this today as amended with a five-year vesting, including the site plan review of lots one through five, whatever, and then at second reading you come back and your owner said, no, I don't want to do that for whatever reason, we can make we can go back to the three-year without having to have a, a third reading? Go back to the three-year. Okay. Back to only three-year vesting at second reading should your owner not uh, agree. Okay. Uh, this is a public hearing. Anybody wishing to comment on this? Seeing none, I'll close the public hearing and bring it back to the board. Any further questions or comments? Uh, ready to accept the motion? 
I move to approve the Barter Parcel Subdivision PUD detailed submission of final plat Roaring Fork Meadows Major Plat Amendment and Activity Envelope Site Plan Review for Common Parcel 2 at first reading amended to allow five years of vested rights uh, conditioned upon lots 1 through 5 um, agreeing to go through site plan review throughout that vesting period. Second. Any further discussion? Seeing none, all in favor say aye. 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 Great, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Does the board to continue and take a short break? Short break. We have one more item to go. I think there's going to be a lot of discussion on this item. So, grassroots, take a 10 minute break. We guess we can be in here at 1.30. Oh, right. Yes. Birthdays, happy birthday, Ryan. Thank you. Thank you for the cake. Very tasty. And next on our land use public hearings, we have a land use code amendments, which includes special events, definition of grocery store, Meadowwood subdivision, non-conforming lots with, without significant changes, hearing officer appeal with special review for TDR, and these are all first readings. Mike Kramer's here from Condeb. So we should probably attack this one at a time, perhaps? That's what I was kind of thinking. Um, I can do just a brief background, and then my plan was just to go over the ordinance. And then um, I was going to ask you, George, how you wanted to do it, if you wanted to, me to present each one in the ordinance, and then the board can all discuss. Let's do it one at a time like that. OK. Yeah. I'll do a brief uh, background on the, on the code amendments. Um, if you all remember, in April, we did a uh, work session with the board, and we talked about special events. And uh, special events were acknowledged to be you know, great for the community and the economy. And the board had um, various directions to staff. And one of ComDev's uh, directions was to amend the land use code to allow for smaller, very small, uh, still film and photo shoots to occur. Um, so staff has uh, initiated these code amendments. We've convened a uh, special event committee. We've taken them through PNZ. And um, we have some uh, draft language for the board, the board to review. And then additionally, we have some other cleanup items um, that we, uh, from time to time, bring forward to the board um, that the land use code needs to be changed. And bills I'll go through individually there too and go through the ordinance. Um, so with that, I'll start with the ordinance, if that's OK. Um, so staff's draft ordinance begins on attachment A. And exhibit A will be the first one I'll talk about quickly. And this is a code amendment in our uh, long chart here in our land use code in, in uh, chapter two, which is our procedural chart in our land use code. It, it identifies and dictates uh, what processes will be, uh, uh, land use applications will be taken through. Interestingly, um, this was brought to our attention when the hearing officer uh, reviews and decides upon a request for TDRs, transferable development rights. Uh, it is a review by staff, a decision by the hearing officer, and it came to our atten uh, attention that there is no appeal process for um, that currently. 
And we think that's just a mistake. There should be an appeal process for this decision. And we are including, it's actually very small, which you'll see is an A on page 4 of 11 of the ordinance. And that allows for the decision of the hearing officer to be appealed to the Board of County Commissioners. It's, I think, just a glitch, and it needs to be in there, and we've included the A then for appeal to the Board. Any questions on that? Well, and that's that underlined A down on the graph that says, use of TDR certificate for additional floor area on a lot parcel in the rural area not listed in section something or other. Yeah, exactly. That's it. To the Board of County Commissioners. Okay, continue. Okay. The next one will be Exhibit B, and this is section 43050I. And this is the section of the land use code that regulates temporary commercial uses and special events. And the ordinance, page 7 of 11, number 6, is what we're proposing for this low-impact photo and movie film productions. And the way we wanted to do this was structure it so it was easy for the applicant to identify what standards would be in place for them to qualify for this low-impact movie film production event. And then also easy for staff to issue a response to the applicant so they can proceed with their event if it complies with these standards. Now, I just want to say, too, Special Events Committee had a hard time getting their head around this one. This code amendment is for a very small number of special events that staff processes during the year. Typically, over the years, we'll see 40 to 45 special event permits and maybe four, sometimes five special events for very small photo shoots will come through. And the one that we brought up at the April meeting was, like, Jacuzzi comes in every year, maybe twice a year, to do a photo shoot. And that photo shoot entails maybe four models in a Jacuzzi, and there's maybe one or two camera people there to photo the still photo shoot. And it goes into a magazine. It happens for a day, maybe two days. And it's always the one where we have to take them to the process, and we acknowledge that that's one that we could possibly take through this exemption, well, for lack of a better word, exemption for the small production. So this is a very small code section that will apply to our special events. And if it's okay, I'll just read what we have here. What we're trying to get the applicant to do is to email staff 10 working days before the production and to give us times and dates and locations of the special event that will happen. We're going to limit this to five vehicles maximum, 15 people total. All the staging, including the equipment and the actors and all the ancillary things that go on with this, has to be located on private property. We've had a blanket statement to have no off-site impacts. We're not going to allow parking on public roads, and we have to maintain emergency access at all times. If for some reason this would happen near or on federal land or state land, they would have to get federal permits or state permits in addition to this permit with Pickens County. We're limiting the filming to no more than two days from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., and that includes the setup and the takedown for the event. The applicant still has to show us limited liability insurance, which is standard for all events that apply with us. We've included the noise regulations in our county code, 
and they have decibel levels there too. We thought it was good that the applicant know what these decibel levels were. Um, and in the end, this would be emailed to staff. We would review it, and if they qualify with these standards, then we would email them back saying that you may proceed, and if for some reason they can't meet these standards, then they would have to go through the formal process with us to get a temporary commercial use or a special event permit. Um, so this is what we're proposing for language for this code section. I, I, I think this is a good step to have a low-end threshold for such a <laughs> event so that it's easy for them to not have to go through a more strenuous permit. But I also made the recommendation when we looked at this, boy, I think it was almost six months or a year ago, um, that the odd thing to me seemed that there isn't a floor to this in terms of myself taking a chef to a private home with my camera in a private house that I would still have to go through this. Um, you know, is, is there a way of making it legal for a local business to do a small photo shoot with two people without having any special permit? Or are we saying that we have to have regulations and we have to get $2 million of aggregate coverage and $1 million for each occurrence and have an insurance policy if I'm going to take a picture of my chef in a private home to post on my website. Um, and, and that is just, I think, a, a, a hard thing for any business to say that they're going to be, you know, that, that they're going to comply with that for taking a photo. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I, I, I like this as a low-end threshold, but what's the, is there a way of writing into the code a floor? Like, if you're, if you're less than one car, less than three people, less than one day, you don't need a special permit at all, and go have at it in a private home. Um, because I don't know a restaurant in town that hasn't taken photos of their chef somewhere on county, you know, somewhere within the county, or or businesses for their website, or um, you know, their ad in the Daily News, or or the yeah. Times, and they've all violated having this, you know, million dollar coverage. And I don't think you're, we're going to have an enforcement officer that goes out there and goes after them. But I think every business wants to reasonably be within the code <laughs> um, and so this is 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 a good I, I am in totally agreement with this as as a first step but I still think we need that other piece that says if you have one photographer one assistant and you know two people from the business that they can go in a private home with one car and not have to go through a special permit that's just my Rachel? Yeah, you know, I given that this is first reading and we could have staff look at how to add a floor, I think that that's a good idea. You know, I'm just thinking about it, how many real estate brochures that you see that have three pictures of this is the master bedroom, this is the view from the front window, this is that, and they probably did not have a special event permit to go photograph the inside of the home yeah. that they're getting ready to list. And so, uh, you know, it, there's no reason to write code that creates violations out of people 
unnecessarily. And, you know, I, I don't know what that floor is exactly. I think you've come close to describing it. Um, but I, I, I'd want staff to take a look and think about it. And, and, and I just wonder if, if we're getting bogged down in terms of a, the definition of a special event, because, you know, for example, your scenario with a real estate, I mean, that's really a marketing. It's not a, it's not a special event. Yeah. And even Rob, with your case, it's not a special event. It's, it's really an advertising. It's marketing. So I, I, perhaps we're, we're just trying to we're, we're getting too bogged down in terms of the definition of a special event and, and what is a special event and what isn't. Yeah. I'm, I'm imagining this is virtually comes under the First Amendment. I mean, you have the right to freedom of expression. That's what that covers. The, what, what we're trying to cover is when there are potential impacts to county roads and health and safety. And it's pretty simple. I mean, these are commercial operations that their business not is not a restaurant business, but it is the business of staging events, essentially. And this event is <coughs> jacuzzi, hot tubs, and so forth and so on. And um, I think there's a substantial difference. And, and I just don't see that that having a camera somehow puts you in a special event context. But it's just yeah. not that. And, and I agree with what you guys are both saying, but I still think that this is vague, you know, it, 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 because I do think this is needed. I think people could have uh, commercial shoots that last for a week. You know, they will qualify for this. They're obviously the next level up. This is the in-between level. But how do you at least clearly state this shall not apply to simple activities such as photographing the inside of homes for sale for real estate brochures, for uh, individual marketing efforts of a given business? You know, I mean, it, it's more about, you know, what, does, what is exempt or what does this not cover? Because if I just came in from the outside um, or I was new, I might think I have to find a way to comply with this. And, and yeah, I mean, for me, it really comes down to perhaps we just need to have a definition. Like we're going to have a definition coming up here for a grocery store, but it's a special event. And those that fall under special event, we can determine. And those that don't, then we need to really address. Yeah. I mean, that, that would be my suggestion. And, and I, I agree with that. I'm just saying that sometimes things are defined by what they are, and they're also defined by what they're not. And, and, you know, by, by putting that these things shall not be considered special events will assist in defining that. They're, they're consulting over that. <laughs> I think they're looking at the definition of a special event. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, if you take the strict interpretation, what you're talking about, taking your chef to someone's house for a commercial purpose of advertising would, would fit within temporary commercial use. I mean, if you really, obviously we... Which would require a special event. Yeah, well, which clearly we never know that happens. No. Yeah. impacts anyone. We never worry about it. You know what? Well, we don't want to know. It never comes up. But yes, you are correct that if you were just reading that. Yeah. It seemed to me that the, perhaps the, the better effort would be in the, uh, the clearer 
definition and expression of what a temporary commercial use and special event is. That way, that is defined. And it's obviously what we're concerned with, the impacts on the greater community, whether it's traffic or, 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 or something else, that, uh, that need to be covered. And we need to know about them in advance. We, we want them to have a level of insurance and so forth. Anything that does not qualify under that definition of a special event or temporary commercial use should just not even be something we are concerned with, i.e., commercial photographs for a, a restaurant or for a, a real estate offering or, or anything like that. So uh, maybe that's the better. That works. So maybe when we come back for second reading, we can have that included as that's that definition. Sure. It'll have to. It'll, It'll be separate. It'll be a separate. policies and we do not use helicopters to film um, events and what we decided was that instead of just having that as policy it'd be just good if it was codified and put it in the code. So the language that we devised um, is as follows, helicopters shall not be used for filming unless approved by the BOCC. And there's two, I'll, I'll just clarify two parts of this, of this um, statement too. We said used for filming because um, that's predominantly what we see helicopters used for. Um, there are instances where helicopters have been used for other special events. Um, the Pro Cycling Challenge comes to mind. And then also the Elk Mountain Grand Traverse from Crested Butte to Aspen has used a helicopter to drop supplies at one of the huts up there. And um, that saves them like 25 snowmobile trips to do it. Um, so we have in the past approved that, and then obviously the board has approved the helicopter for filming the Pro Cycling Challenge. So what we did was um, say that unless approved by the BOCC, um, a helicopter can't be used. So if there is a request, the board will be notified and it will be your decision to make then. That's a request. Okay. Okay. Any questions or comments? Any nods? Well then, you know, the only thing that strikes me is whether that should be expanded a little bit so that we don't end up hearing and denying 12 different requests for helicopters every year that want to film a new Subaru commercial or something like that. You know, do, is it worth having a distinction as to uh, potentially related to athletic events that require health safety support or something. But this kind of makes it sound like, you know, we're open for business that way, but you just have to bring it into the BOCC. And we haven't set any criteria up as to what our own decision would be made from. Yeah, and I just put that out for consideration. We certainly can leave it just the way it is, but I, you know, maybe wait to see if there's more issues. Uh, I think that's the, the, uh the monkey and the wrench, the fact that there's no criteria. Uh, we could be seen as arbitrary and capricious because we say yes to one and no to another? Yeah, absolutely. It would be impossible, I think, to defend without uh, some list of criteria to which you're applying a set of facts and, and then basing your decision on either allowing it or not allowing it. Yeah. I mean, I, I can see things such as live broadcast being a criteria, that this will 
you know, may, may not have to hit all the criteria, but obviously the pro-rice challenge is live broadcast. It, it's not. The other is, you know, to reduce impacts to uh, public lands and disturbance of wildlife, um, which would relate to the food drop from the Grand Traverse. Those just strike me as two criteria of the type of things we would even consider. You know. all, wildlife impacts could be all sorts of things. But, but developing that list of criteria, I think, would be appropriate. That way, that way, people know what to expect when you walk in, as opposed to just coming in and uh, wasting a lot of time and being denied. Yeah. Great, great marketing benefit. You know, as a, I mean, yeah. part of the reason why we allowed it for the, the pro race was the marketing benefit to our community. Mm -hmm. The other thing that is occurring a lot is the use of. A remote control helicopter drones for filming, uh, and and I'm not sure how that fits into this, but but I think it's something that we should consider in some way, um, because essentially you could have them hovering over your neighborhood. Uh, I mean, I just don't know what the impacts are. We have when when people have come to us to ask us about that, we've treated it the same as if it were a manned helicopter. You, uh, you have something in the air filming that could fall and hurt people, and that's been our position on that. Because I mean, has used it for a lot of air film production. Everybody uses it these days. The, the real estate companies are using it to film the estates around here, but and it could be you know less benign purposes too. I don't know, and I don't know what the the use of helicopters has to conform certainly with the FAA strictures, right? I mean, you cannot invade a neighborhood with a helicopter, so right? I mean, you have there's some minimum. You have to be at, and some reason to be there. Remember, are those drones helicopters or are they planes or they're they're helicopters? They're helicopters. The both. Yes. So, yeah, I just, I, I don't know. I don't know how we work it. There's just a lot of complications here. So. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you bringing that up, Michael, because it's just a whole new territory, and uh, you know, I think we'll need a lot of investigation about it. There's a lot of communities that are starting to employ those for everything from traffic safety to um, fire spotting in the backcountry and that they are, you know, can be a tool in a community that's used by public agencies and then there are areas where they're, they're obviously not. Um, and so I don't, I do not know how to begin to treat that area, but I think we should, you know, really begin a more formal investigation and start to develop some guidelines. Yeah, I mean, they're used, you know, for, for marketing purposes. So it could be part of this, could be part of, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, I just hate to see neighborhoods have flyovers of drones, essentially, because one person in the neighborhood is selling their house. Yeah, and it starts to be an invasion of privacy at some level, too. Yeah. I think that's a good point. Um, Mike, you talked earlier about um, you have a special events committee. What's the makeup of that committee? Sure. Um, the special events committee um, compri is comprised of the sheriff's office, the fire districts, um, the appropriate ambulance districts, um, the emergency manager, 
uh, various caucuses, neighborhood groups, um, based on anyone who's impacted um, that potentially can be impacted by the uh, special event can be invited into the committee to offer comments then. Um, but basically that's, that's, that's the committee and how it works is we'll convene the committee to talk about that special event and then we'll need appropriate sign-offs from um, who's impacted. So we can use that, utilize that committee to, to try to come up with some guidelines for helicopter and drone use? Um, I mean, you yeah. seems like you've got the right players in that committee in terms of public safety, neighborhood caucuses, mm -hmm. com dev staff. Yeah, we could do that. I think that would be valuable. I think that's a, that's a good suggestion. Right. So I guess the question is whether or not we leave this in as is for second reading and then have this come back as well for a separate amendment with further staff and, and how staff would or we would want to proceed with that. It just sounds like more work to be done. John, would that be similar to what we just did? We would have to go before the PNZ first and then come back for us. So it would just be an amendment to this. This would get us started. Yes. Do we have to worry about uh, any timing of that? Because, as you said, if we get some requests in the next year for a helicopter use and we don't have any guidelines and then another request comes in, is there any concern on that? It can be problematic if there's a denial of the use without some criteria or standard or something to point to that the applicant fails to meet, and therefore we don't want to see it in that. So right now, in, in the code, it's just no helic helicopter use. So that's pretty cut and dry. It's, it's, not, even, uh, it's not even in the code. It's actually the, the policy that and the direction that has been given to staff that we have been implementing. But it's not in the code. So we better off having something in the code temporarily until we get better defining this, or? Nothing. A flat-out prohibition is clear and can be justified. Uh, if you have something in the code where you can allow an event or an occurrence of something helicopter use, for example, in one instance and then deny it in another, you need to have some you need to have some standard that can be referenced to determine why somebody is allowed and is not allowed to be able to defend it. So it, you could go ahead with a flat out prohibition, but that might not obviously be something you want to do either. Um, I think the uh, the best course is to just flesh this out with criteria that are appropriate and suitable so that applicants know where they stand and the board knows what we're looking at when we review these requests. Okay, so pull that committee together with Godspeed. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, and at least we could get the helicopter one dealt with if the drone one's going to take longer. Because it seems much more. Not black helicopter. We can go down. <laughs> <laughs> Must be red. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Next one. <laughs> We're just getting it warmed up. Okay. Exhibit C, um, and actually it'll be Exhibit D also because it um, it, it uh, cross references. Um, exhibit C, and we're looking at note nine. It's that underlying language. The Maryland subdivision, um, which is just west of town, um, is a subdivision within the county that at one time was in a, a lawsuit with Pickett County and 
BOCC resolution 99-124 was what got flushed out during that. And I, I wasn't here for it, but I understand the resolution. And basically what happened is that it allowed for more floor area in that subdivision. And uh, within that subdivision, there is a zone district uh, that has a floor area ratio. It's R30. And the way the code currently reads is that the Meadowwood subdivision has a growth management exemption of the floor area ratio in that, in that zone district. And then also, whatever floor area is afforded in resolution 99-124, it's about 2,000 square feet is what they get. And the way the code reads today is that that is their growth management exemption. Now, uh, there are some cases within the subdivision where there are some really small lots in the subdivision. And uh, some of those lots can achieve, cannot achieve a 5,750 square foot growth management exemption. So in effort to be fair, because the entirety of the county has a growth management exemption of 5,750 square feet, we would propose to add in this underlying language um, that says that they can have their 5750 growth management exemption or if they have a lot that affords them a bigger than 5750 growth management exemption, they get that then. And, and just to tell you, this is in no way increasing floor area in Meadowwood subdivision or changing any zoning. This is just specific um, and acknowledging that if a small lot within the subdivision um, can't achieve 5750, they can now with this code amendment, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. yeah, so the entirety of the county is 5750, and basically we felt that this should be implemented so that, that those lots can have that growth management exemption too. Thank you. You know, is Meadowwood in the urban growth boundary? Mm -hmm. it, it does strike me as a little funny that as it was laid out originally, some of the lots were smaller lots, and maybe they were supposed to have smaller homes. And now we're bumping it all up, even though it's within the urban growth boundary. And it's, you know, hop, skip, and a jump across the street to where different fluidary ratios in the city limits would apply to smaller lots. And so I, I just don't know, are we going to be creating a situation where you get 20 pounds in a 15 pound bag on, and, and impact the neighbors because we're granting much more. I mean, what are those smaller lots constrained to today and should we actually increase those? Mm -hmm. How many of them are there? So there's, a, there's a, a very clear distinction. We're talking about growth management versus zoning. You're correct, some smaller lots within the Meadowwood subdivision bigger ones. And with the floor area ratio, the bigger ones get bigger above grade, and the smaller ones get smaller above grade. This code amendment um, is not changing zoning or floor area ratios. They are still restricted to whatever their floor area ratio has above grade. That's not changing whatsoever. We're not changing the zoning out there. But what, what this code amendment would change is growth, their growth management exemption. And the entirety, entirety of the county is 5750 for growth management exemption. And um, the way someone can achieve floor area today in the urban growth boundary with a floor area ratio is that you get your floor area ratio, so your above grade allowance, which your FAR gives you, then you get a 4,000 square foot uh, below grade space, and then you get a 750 square foot garage. But that's only exempt floor area up to 5750. And if someone goes above that, then they need TDRs or compete in the competition to attain that floor area. 
in the Meadowood subdivision, they had this, this board resolution from 1999 that also gives them about 2,000 square feet of floor area. And the way the code reads today is that Meadowood's growth management exemption is their total allowable floor area plus their 2,000 square feet that they get with 99-124. And because there are some small lots within the Meadowood subdivision, some of them don't even get up to 5750 for a growth management exemption. And in the grand scheme of things, that's really not equitable because the whole county has a growth management exemption of 5750. So in effort to be equitable, this would create that 5750 GMQS exemption for Meadowood. This is not changing zoning. This will not increase um, um, above grade floor area. This, uh, this will not pack a 10-pound house into a two-pound lot. This is only giving them an equitable 5750 growth management exemption, and, and that's it. I'm just going to say, when you come back at second reading, if we could have a little more either graphic illustration sure. or some something that clarifies this, yeah. would be helpful to me. Okay. Other questions on this? Okay. Next month? Exhibit E, um, this is page 10 of 11 for the ordinance. And this is this is our chapter 9 in the land use code that deals with um, non-conforming, legal non-conforming structures and uses within the county. And the subsection we're looking at is 95020C. And there are certain um, legal non-conforming structures that can be expanded and repaired and restored within the county. Um, and this code section acknowledges that. But um, there are some prohibited enlargements of a nonconformity. And one of those is when there's a structure that exceeds its floor area. So let's just say that there's an old structure in the 60s when we didn't have zoning, and it exceeds its floor area ratio, and it's on Red Mountain. Um, the way the code cur currently reads is that one would be able to um, not expand the floor area where the floor area has been exceeded. Now, this is going to get into two different types of floor area. One I think we're going to need another illustration. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I'll just finish here. What this does is that one could ask for expansion of, of gross floor area. And gross floor area is above grade floor area, below grade floor area, and your, your garage. That's gross floor area for a lot. And the way this code section reads is that um, one cannot exceed their floor area, which is their above grade floor area, okay? Okay. Meaning that gross floor area is the entirety of a floor area in the lot, basement, garage, above grade. Um, and floor area is only your above grade. Um, what this does when we put in gross, that underlying word gross in this code section, is that they would not be able to exceed their gross floor area. I mean, they would not be able to add the basement, they would not be able to add the garage, uh, without going to a Board of County Commissioner's review. And this is, this is kind of a, a nuance, if you will, because the way it reads today, one could exceed their uh, floor area by putting in a basement and a garage um, and have a staff level review. We don't think that's appropriate. We think that if floor area is exceeded because you've got this old quirky house from the 60s, 
It really should be a, a Board of County Commissioner review. And putting this in this section, this, this gross, allows for that to happen. And it then becomes a Board of County Commissioner review, and you all then can look at it then. And I can do some illustrations for next week if that helps. You know, what, what has happened is if, if the way that the, the real case is if someone has a 7,000 square foot house with no basement, and the floor area today only allows 5,000, and, and so it's a non-conforming structure, and we allow replacement of non-conforming structures. So people have actually come to us and say, well, I'm going to replace 7,000 square feet of floor area. I'm also going to put in a 4,000 foot basement because that's not really floor area. You exempt that from floor area. So suddenly we have an 11,000 square foot house, which even though 4,000 of it is subgrade, it just didn't seem right to us that a structure that was already non-conforming could get bigger and have bigger impacts on the neighborhood without a Board of County Commissioner review. It didn't seem like a staff review kind of thing. And that that's why we wanted to deal with that. Rachel? Um, I support this going forward with that explanation. Um, but again, at second reading, I would perhaps be interested in understanding what criteria would our board have to be able to deny or modify the request. And I, I don't know if that just leaves it wide open. No, what, what Mike didn't say is we have restoration without significant changes, and if one didn't fit in this, they have to fit in restoration with significant changes, which is a different section of the code that does have criteria in it for the board review. Okay, and so maybe again, just bring that forward at second reading so I can see how the whole system plays through. It would not also be helpful to have an example that you just mentioned, Lance, in, in, the, in the script uh, for future boards and, and just uh, applicants so they, they have a, perhaps a clearer understanding of what is really meant by this because it is a little confusing without that. Those yeah, it's, it's something that we assumed was just logical and that's the way anyone should read this, but we have lots of very... Uh, uh, eager applicants and they say it does not say gross floor area it says floor area therefore I should be able to build this big basement and that's what's happened yeah, so let's throw an example in there as well okay. other questions on this one okay next one sure last one is the grocery store definition if you remember um, a couple months ago we processed a code amendment um, that uh, allowed for a larger grocery store within the urban growth boundary and the one the applicant was Roxy's and, and that got processed through but in those meetings the board directed us to define grocery store so that we didn't have um, a large um, retail slash grocery slash um, goods store go in that this is only for a grocery store so you asked us to define it and this is the definition uh, that staff and the PNZ has come up with um, and it states, I guess read it for the record, uh, grocery store means a retail establishment that is primarily engaged in sales of packaged food and produce rather than food prepared for consumption on the premises or other goods. Rachel? Yeah. Um, I know that you later explain you mean primarily as 50% uh, or more. So 
I can understand what you mean by primarily. Um, the, the question, and it, 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 this would be an amplification on this, but the two expressions I had thought about were means of retail establishment that is primarily engaged in the sales of packaged food and produce meant to be prepared at home rather than food prepared for takeout or consumption on the premises or other goods. And I just wasn't sure. I don't want to add different nuances to it by mistake. But, um, you know, it strikes me as really odd because you look at a can of Campbell's soup or Hormel chili, and is that, uh, you know, I can microwave it here in the store, or I can take it home and throw it on a chili dog. You know, it's going, I don't want it to be difficult for staff to be looking at the aisles and saying, is this 50% for consuming here on site? or is it 50% for taking home? But it seems like you're, if you're trying to get to a grocery store, that's where you buy your groceries to take home, to prepare at home, or to be prepared in a residence, or however you want. And I just saw that out for consideration, but I, I wasn't sure that this wasn't another one of those ones that someone was going to find a large loophole in. And um, I think the example is when the city did its zoning for small businesses, I can't remember the, uh, you know, but more like the down near Clark's Market where the laundromat is and everything, it was that, you know, yes, we can have used and consignment stores or we can have bike repair shops, but they shouldn't be retail shops. And so they got into a real problem finding out, well, is it 50% used resale or 50% new product? You know, is it is it actual retail locations that are getting into that supposed to be service commercial? Uh, area as opposed to a retail bike shop should be downtown. You know, it, was it a way to sneak into a less uh, expensive, expensive area? And so I just want staff as much as anything to look at the uh, enforcement aspect of this and does it give you enough? John? Um, based on your comments, Rachel, I'm wondering if you want the 50% uh, added back into the language. Yeah, I saw 50% on one of the other things. It was things. in a staff memo yeah. that was addressed to the PNZ, and yeah. that tells me the PNZ deleted the 50%. The PNZ so. changed 50% to primarily. Yeah, which I think means more than 50%, you know, is what we would assume. But I, I, I do not know, and I, I don't know, again, whether the addition of the words uh, uh, meant to be prepared at home assists or not, or makes it more confusing. I think the, the reason that PNZ didn't want the 50% is they were thinking of Walmart, which has a lot of packaged foods for sale, but they also have TVs and everything everything else you can think of, and so they thought primarily was a better word than 50%. We'd get closer to what we wanted, even though primarily. Or maybe predominantly is a better word than primarily. Mm -hmm. it's, all, it's all going to be up for interpretation, but <laughs> primarily to me means the bulk of it yeah. is... For a and in your example, in terms of you know the can of chili, well, the can of chili is, is packaged. Yeah. So I'm comfortable with this. I'd love to see perhaps our enforcement officer weigh in. On this. I don't know they'll be able to take this direction and use it, and whether anything needs to be clarified from their point of view. Um, you know, how, how would they apply that? I don't think it's going to be a question of enforcement. I mean, just, I mean, I just don't think, you know, we're going to approve it, and we're going to approve it with the understandings of the applicant. And I, this language is clear to me. 
very clear. Um, and I just don't think it's going to be an enforcement problem uh, ever. I'm okay with the language the way it is. I think it protects against the main thing that Lance says, which is uh, a Walmart or something that's more household goods than than grocery goods. Um, and the other issue that came up was protecting against a liquor store um, falling in this because it still has to be primarily um, sale for packaged foods. Well, I think the majority of these are good with it. And that's it. That's the last one. Um, so this was first reading public hearing, and staff will set second reading uh, January 23rd. Is it a public hearing? I don't have a motion to comment on this. Seeing none, we'll close the public hearing. Bring it back to the board. Motion, question. Uh -huh. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to move this on to second reading. I, I still do want a little more investigation of the grocery store question. Just, just on the ground today, Roxy's is obviously a grocery store. But what would um, the Conoco and Old Snowmass facility be? Or what would the Aspen Village store be? In, if we applied this definition, would it be a convenience store? Would it be a gas station with some food to go? Or would we start to call it a grocery store? And so I, I, I'm just, you know, I, I, I love to think there will never be a problem for a future board. Unfortunately, I've just seen them before. And so, um, you know, it, it, if, if I'm the only one raising that and, and therefore it's not worth any further investigation, that's fine. I just would like to, to know if there's any any lingering doubts out there about what we end up meaning. Because, you know, the, the, the ability of grocery stores to sell liquor is something that, you know, is constantly pushing through the uh, state legislature. And I think you could get to a place where it's 49% liquor and 51% food. And, we, you know, I guess that's a separate liquor license and there might be some control there. But what if, you know, it's 75% food and, and uh, 30% bicycles. Is that what we want? A, a bicycle sale shop or snow skis ski shop? You know, I mean, how how do we how do we work that? Do we do we have a definition for uh, differentiate between a convenience store and a grocery store? Well, we don't. This is the definition that we're proposing for grocery stores. How about convenience store? Like the the snowmass common code? Or the 7-Eleven at the mall? We'll take a look at it in a second. Okay, great, right, thank you. I'll make a motion to approve the uh, ordinance of the Board of County Commissioner of Pickens County, Colorado, amending Title VIII of the Pickens County Code, specifically the 2006 land use code, uh, for special events and other various uh, text amendments um, with the uh, adjustments to come back for second reading. Second. Any further discussion? Sign all the papers are on. Great, thank you. Thank you. Okay, we're on to uh, open discussion. First, we have uh, I only have one thing that we're getting ready to order chairs for you all down here um, since we had such a 
a, a mishmash. We went over the real band. We thought we haven't replaced these in a while. Um, so we're going to look at some samples. Um, if anyone has any particular information, come through me and Susan. We're working on it with risk management. They will be ergonomic. They will have adjustments. Um, so you'll be able to do that. And um, since she's sitting in for such a long time, some days, we thought that would be a and good And so is our PUV, and so is our open space and trials, and who knows who else. Yeah. <laughs> so if we're going to get new chairs for down here. Michael, have we heard that you're okay? No. With your chair? No. So we'll get so far, I'm at the door. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Right. The chair's back, we don't chairs. We don't make them sit in broken chairs. Okay. Yeah. 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 Any further discussion? Well, um, I did not, or others, get to give our thanks to Michael for being chair last year. Uh, and uh, certainly, as uh, George has alluded to, bringing uh, a great sense of decorum to the meetings. And uh, appreciate your patience with myself and others throughout uh, this entire year. Thanks. Good job. Thank you. Okay, you better have another. Yeah. Thank you, Mayor John. Thank you, Grassroots.